0: Okay, let us start. Namaste to all of you. We are in the commentary of the Bhagavad Gita, and we are in the chapter 3, and last time we opened a very important door. We opened a very esoteric parenthesis. Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna how is the thing with the Dharma, with the righteousness, with what is the right action he started by telling him the famous sentence which is like a mantra which says action is superior to inaction which is one of the most grand statements one of the greatest mantras of all the Bhagavad Gita but then doing this at some point he mentions and he wants to say all the actions have to be done with detachment like karma yoga thus you are doing your dharma you are fulfilling your dharma and he says then he finds to say well except those which pertain to the religious sacrifice the english expression religious sacrifice is a clumsy translation of the hindu sanskrit term yagya which is written yajna like ajna chakra but it's not pronounced ajna, it's pronounced agya, so yajna is pronounced yagya, actually, and is generally interpreted in the Vedic Indian culture as the fire ceremony, as the sacrifice of fire. The fire ceremony, it is maybe the place to say it here, is a ceremony in which a Vedic priest organizing a fire according to some very rigid and idiosyncratic rules, like it is not allowed to have any impure outer ingredient, only five types of wood which grow up in India can be used. There are a lot of puritanic rules about how to do it, which are all of them magic rules. And the fire ceremony is therefore the lighting of a sort of a sacred fire, and that sacred fire being consecrated and blessed with mantras then the vedic priest starts throwing stuff into the fire among the most often used stuff would be butter actually ghee clarified butter which will make the fire flare even more but not only different seeds different flowers different foods different small items are thrown into the fire And the magic idea is that the fire works like an elevator. You throw it at the ground floor in the fire and the fire delivers it at the 10th floor somewhere. The fire, by burning things, dematerializes them. And the energy associated to them is therefore sent. And where does the fire send things? According to the mantras which are used. The mantras which are used can say that you make a fire ceremony for Agni or for Varuna or for Indra or for whatever you do. Therefore, the fire ceremony is a sort of elaborate magic ceremony. It's an elaborate form of magic, but as I explained last time, it actually touches way more than magic because the concept of sacrifice covers any form of religious performance all the true religions have at their core a sacrifice and the sacrifice in primitive societies means exactly that like people sacrifice goats to i don't know which god or people sacrifice animals or people sacrifice sacrificial lambs or whatever is sacrificed And the more metaphysical and the more sattvic and the more wise that religion becomes, the more the sacrifice is symbolic and allegoric. Like, for example, in Christianity, Christ, Jesus, abhorring the sacrifice of animals, like why would you kill lambs and give them to God, he replaced it with his own blood and flesh, but that one in a symbolic way, which is used in the Christian church as red wine and bread. So therefore, this is a sign of great evolution already, because like, we don't need to go into cutting, bleeding, animals, whatever. It it is already highly symbolic. And the same things exist in buddhism in hinduism in every religion under one form or another you identify the sacrifice and the sacrifice is the sort of the man the human being giving something to god and receiving grace on the other hand so when christians for example go to the christian mass they give to god their faith their energy their prayer their time their devotion and they receive the blood and body of christ which is a sort of divinization a sort of grace which they can eat physically and thus be blessed in a very organic way and thus everything in true religions is based on the sacrifice and krishna actually explains it remember in indian culture he uses all the time in sanskrit the word yagya 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 but this is way beyond yagya in itself it represents many things as i explained last time even the control of the sexual energy is a sacrifice even the holding of the breath is a sacrifice even the immobility of the body in a hatha yoga asana is a sacrifice by which something is suppressed and then sublimed and offered to the divine and when you do asanas you don't need a sacrificial fire the sacrificial fire is inside you it's kundalini shakti rising the energy to sahasrara so you have a metaphorical or a symbolic allegoric fire in you that's why kundalini is not coincidentally compared very often to a fire ida nadi is the moon pingala nadi is the sun and sushumna nadi is the fire moon sun fire why fire because that's exactly the elevator shaft so yagya is an external ritual for householders who don't have power of concentration and who haven't cleansed their nadis and who don't have power of visualization and therefore you need to use something external and all the religions use external props and external paraphernalia because the normal religious people lack spiritual education they lack mystical practice or spiritual practice and they don't have inner abilities it is only the yogis, the sufi dervish dancers and a few others who develop this in their own body with their own energy and concentration and thus they don't need any external religion because the religion is inside their own body the body is the temple nothing external is needed thus Krishna is explaining here a mystery which is almost as big as the Bhagavad Gita in itself Like this door which Krishna opens is the door explaining the sacrifice in all the societies starting with shamanic, animic, primitive societies in which sacrifice is done to some inferior entities, lower spirits and still it's sacrifice and going to the Vedic culture where sacrifices were made for the gods like in the Roman Empire where bulls were sacrificed to jupiter or other such sacrifices and finishing with a metaphysical spirituality where the sacrifice becomes purely symbolic and it addresses to the one to the supreme to the transcendent and we conclude the last time with the strophe number 11 Where Krishna was saying, through yagya you sustain the gods, and those gods will sustain you. By sustaining one another, you will attain the highest good. And I explained at that time that by giving you receive, and you can't receive if you don't give because the consciousness is the human consciousness is a give and receive type of mentality. And thus the yagya is first of all beneficial to humanity to the individual but at the same time that there exists a river which flows in this universe at a much lower level that river are for example the alms which we give for the souls of the dead and which people nowadays don't do anymore many of you here have a parent or a grandparent or at least a great grandparent that is dead did you give any alms of food Did you consecrate light? Did you consecrate food and water and prayers for the soul of the departed? Very few people do that because they don't believe in it. Because we are all materialists, people who believe in flesh and matter and the soul of your grandmother is immaterial and people say, well, she's dead, she's dead. Like people would rather embalm the body and put the body in an elegant casket. Instead of thinking that the body is food for the worms and you should care about the soul. But people don't believe in the existence of the soul. And even when they say they believe, they, that's just lip service because they don't really do much. And that's why um, on a smaller scale... Sacrifices to the gods is exactly like you would cooperate with your ancestors. Give alms, give energy to those dead in your family, and they will give you back their protection and blessings. But this circle can be much bigger. It's out of your family and of your immediate acquaintances. It refers to the gods, to the forces of nature, and it refers even to the cardinal powers of this universe. If you give, you receive. If you don't give, those cardinal powers, especially the ones which are above a certain level, they won't suffer. But we will, because if the water doesn't vaporize anymore, then it can't rain. If we stop the vaporization of water, then in a number of days, weeks, or months, the rains will also stop, because there is no more water to pour down. If the rains stop, who loses? Not the heaven. We lose because the rains are vital for us. That's why remember that devotion and sacrifice are actually much deeper. They represent a magic factor which represents a river which cycles through the universe. And if we stop because of our ignorance that river, we don't receive the blessings. That's one of the traits of Kali Yuga. That's why Kali Yuga is such a miserable time. Because people do not sublime, and they do not offer, and they do not sacrifice, and the whole planet is poor in blessings. The higher forces can't even send somebody glorious to incarnate on this planet, because that would be like a rain. Let's have another Ramakrishna incarnate on this planet and bring a little bit more peace, nonviolence, clarity, discrimination, spirituality. But you have to send something to heaven to receive such a gift from heaven. You don't send it, heaven shrugs its shoulders and says, let's see, how long will you go on like that? But in our place, there is drought. There is no water. We stopped the river from flowing. That is why you have to think that either through your spiritual practice or through your religious integration, you have to keep the river flowing. It is essential for our being. And uh, now we continue. Krishna continues in the strophe number 12 and he still has some five strophes where he sticks to this story about Yagya. But now for most of you, the great secrets have been explained and it's more easy to, to elaborate so krishna continues describing the mechanism he says satisfied by the yagya the gods will certainly bestow the enjoyments you desire satisfied by the yagya the gods will give you the joy that you desire like you want health you want long life you want prosperity you want sensual satisfaction you want healthy children you want You want satisfactions and you ask the universe to give it to you. But what did you give to the universe? It's a give and receive type of mentality. The law of karma works at all the levels. You cannot have reaction before you created an action. First you act and the universe reacts. Therefore, the principle is clear. Satisfied by the Yagya, the gods will certainly bestow the enjoyments you desire but he who enjoys their gifts without offering to them is merely a thief like on the back of the righteous there are thriving lots of parasites lots of people who don't do that and it still works for them and therefore they think it works just because they are smart or because it's no need to do something remember When the angel of God in the Old Testament, after the meeting with the prophet, with one of the prophets, with Abraham, decides and says, now I'm going to Sodom and Gomorrah because we have heard that terrible things are happening there. And Abraham inquires and the angels tell him, we're going to wipe them out. That's the Dharma. They have crossed a certain line and they are damaged goods. They don't evolve, they don't, nothing can be done with those people and with that place. They are better off wiped off the surface of the earth. It's better for everybody and for themselves as well. And Abraham says, but what if there are some righteous people? Like, there will be, it is evaluated by theologians today, historians, people who merge theology with history, that Sodom and Gomorrah might have been a city complex of about 500,000 people, half of a million, like really big. And the angel of God, which is like one of the personalities of God, an extension of God, tells to Abraham, if there would be 50, 50 righteous people in that city, we will spare the city for the sake of them. Because, try to realize what a bargain is here. Fifty righteous people in one city carry on their shoulders 500,000. One person carries 10,000 on their shoulders of ignorance, of perverts, worse than ignorance, of of people who are deviant severely. And one person, because of that one person, 10,000 others are allowed to exist like there is a dictum among mystics which says the son of god shines equally over sinners and virtues alike it shines for the virtues but you cannot leave the sinners out it would take a miracle it would take some distortions of the laws of nature and therefore they are accepted they are tolerated if there comes a tsunami when 100,000 people die, if there are any saints among them, there are only two chances. Either an angel has to come and perform a miracle, break the law of the planes, which I explained last time, and appear to them and say, run, run, because now this place will be, and that's very difficult, and it breaks the rules of the game, and it happens quite seldom in history, and the, the, the cosmic consciousness doesn't like much to do that kind of action it's a violation of one's own invisibility of one's own discrete presence in this universe and therefore when a tsunami comes there die some people with really bad karma and there die some people with some moderately bad karma as well you can't separate them anymore that's what's happening when collective events are happening And that's why if collective events have to happen and there is somebody who is not worth getting, not doesn't deserve it, then the cosmic consciousness will say for that person, hold on a little bit, hold the karma, just block it for the time being. It's still there, but right now something would happen. And Abraham, like a real Jew, he starts bargaining with God and he says, what if there are 45? and the angel says okay even if there are 45 will spare the city and abraham shamelessly goes on he says what if there are 40 okay says the angel even if there are 40 like where do you want to get you know where he gets he gets to five he gets down to five so bargain exists at all the levels even for the saints and the prophets they can bargain with god and eventually the angel of god which is the voice of god promises if in sodom and gomorrah there will be five people five righteous people we will spare the city for the sake of them one for a hundred thousand not one for ten thousand and still the divine consciousness will hold that bargain unfortunately there were not five when the angels got in sodom and gomorrah they just found one lot the legendary lot who sheltered them gave tried to protect them and did all the things which you probably know and because there was just one the cities could not be saved and then the angels preferred to turn on to lot and tell him take your wife take your kids and scram out of here because fire is coming and he did and thus he escaped and therefore Remember that it is possible to enjoy the gifts without even knowing that you enjoy them. If there would have been ten righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have continued living and doing whatever they were doing, allegedly perversions of all types, and they would have been spared. And in their ignorance, they wouldn't even have realized that it's because of Lot and nine others like him that they are spared and the hammer doesn't fall. Ignorant people don't even realize that the earthquakes or the tsunamis or the tornadoes or the plague or other things don't come because of others who do the right thing. And all those lazy, ignorant people, they just piggyback on the back of the righteous ones. They are like parasites. One person in 10,000 works hard. And the other ones are having illegitimate fun. And Krishna says, but he who enjoys their gifts, like the gods give rain, the gods give sunshine, the gods give good crops, the gods give food. Nature gives us abundantly a lot of things which make us live and enjoy. And those who enjoy their gifts without offering, like it's not because you offered anything, you've been completely passive and ignorant, and yet the gifts are coming. We eat, but we never say, God, thank you for giving us this food. Nature has been sacrificed. Even if you are a vegetarian, you still sacrifice the nature. Potatoes and carrots and whatever you are eating, this is vegetation that dies for you, so that you can eat it and live. And therefore, the person who is aware gives at least thanks to close the circle in the bible there is a very beautiful sentence in the old testament again which says the ungrateful one shall lose the gift like if you receive a gift that gift can mean simply that you are perfectly healthy or some other gifts and you forget to give thanks eventually you will lose it Sooner or later it shall be taken from you. Because that was the minimum thing which you could have done. You could have simply said thank you. Some of you here have a wonderful life. Some of you really have a good life. Compared to having been born in Somalia. And then you will see you do have a good life. Do you thank for it at least once every day? When you wake up in the morning you say thank you to the universe for my great life. I'm really having a good life? If you don't say, you might lose it. The gift is taken from the one who forgets to thank. Because thanking closes the circle. With the thanks, you send gratitude. And if you send gratitude, then you can receive further on something. But if you receive it and you forget to say even thank you, like, it, like you deserve it, you know, you receive it, but it's like you are an arrogant person and you think that the universe has some duty to give you food, to give you sustenance, to give you... Of course, most of the time it's just indifferent ignorance because people don't even realize what universe we are living into. And then, for such people, the gift disappears. It is taken. That is why it is important to start becoming conscious spiritual persons satisfied by the sacrifice by the yagya the gods will certainly bestow the enjoyments you desire it's a give and receive but he who enjoys their gifts because when it flows when it rains it can't rain only for you it rains for your neighbors as well and the neighbors therefore enjoy the gifts of rain and fertility for if they are farmers but they haven't given anything And Krishna says, but he who enjoys their gifts without offering to them is merely a thief. And that will not go on forever. Those are parasitic human beings, and up till a certain percentage, it is known that it is so. It is always the thing that you can share with others. Like, for example, let's say we do, sometimes we do in this school, A special lecture about space and time. The six dimensions of space and time as understood in Tantric Yoga. Matter and consciousness and all that. It's a special lecture. And I'm asking people, those of you who really want to have a good experience, because that will involve a certain activation of Vishuddha Chakra, and I'm preparing for that lecture. It's more than a lecture. It's an experiment. It's a trip. Please, in that day, if possible, fast. Like, don't eat anything, because not eating, you purify yourself, and your Vishuddha chakra gets a bit more activated due to the lack of energy. And 12 hours of fasting or 16 hours of fasting is nothing for everybody. And then the day comes, and we meet in the evening. And I made the test a couple of times just for my own curiosity. I asked, how many of you did actually fast as a preparation for this lecture? Approximately 25% of the people in the hall had fasted. Did the lecture work? Yes. Did everybody get to feel something exceptional? Yes. Too. the last majority, yes. How did those who did not fast receive it? They piggybacked on the back of those who fasted. A few fasted and the whole community got the benefit for them. That's exactly the way it happens. The gift comes, but it is sometimes not possible to separate it and to say all those who are going to be spared by the lightning move to the other hall because only the wrong ones will remain here and a lightning bolt will hit and they will be fried. Such things in nature are almost impossible to coordinate. The laws of karma, of course, create a synchronicity and some things, but still there are some things which depend on the human free will And that's why it's not possible. So remember, spiritual people carry others on their back. There have been societies in which most people were spiritual and they did their minimal spiritual duty. And then everything was going fine. But as time has passed and as the yugas have become darker and darker, that's the cosmic cycles, the cycles of time, the epochs, then less and less people actually practice the spirituality and sometimes they carry others so krishna says clearly the gods nourished by the sacrifice like you give them something butter or something they will give you the desired objects it's like magic you give to go to indra something and indra gives you health and long life as simple as that Again, it's a give and receive mentality and people don't understand it. Normal people are provoked by it because we always take it at the level of the ego, as you will see in the one of the next strophes, because people say, why do I need to give to receive? It's just fair, isn't it? Nature sacrifices itself all the time. The food that you eat, the clothes that we get, the electricity that we consume. It makes our life good and we achieve lots of things, but it's normal to give something to receive. You cannot be a parasite who only takes and takes and takes. That's one of the ugly things of the human race that we try just to consume and devour and not to give back. And it's even better to give it from the beginning. Like an advance, you don't even need to expect to receive. And then to give. Some skeptical people would go there. And that's why, remember therefore, that there is an exchange and people are irritated. Why does Indra need to get 20, grams of butter? First of all, it's none of your business. Why is it that important to you to understand why does Indra require that? Or who created that ritual and who created that rate of exchange? Can you change something about it? Can you do something about it? Can you bargain with Indra? If you are like the prophet Abraham, you can, but you are not. You are not having a physical visitation from Indra, which would allow you to re-bargain, the whole, to renegotiate the whole deal. Therefore, this thing is traditional. It's all as old as history. And people say, why do I have to give to Indra butter? Can't I give him margarine? Like, this is ego. This is just plain stupidity. It's exactly like you say, why does the wheat has to germinate in six months? Can you make the wheat germinate in two months? Usually not. They try with genetically modified species, but it doesn't really work that well. And therefore, nature has got its laws. And those laws are non-negotiable. You better learn to use them instead of being irritated by them. People usually get irritated at nature. It rains. Why does it have to rain? Can you stop it? No. If you don't have that power, then why bother? Then learn to use it for something. It rains. Stay in your house and do meditation. Focus on your third eye. No, there is no electricity. Stay in your house and focus on your crown chakra. You'll get something out of it. No, It's like you can't bargain with nature unless you are like Padmasambhava, unless you are like Milarepa. Then you can bargain with the forces of nature. But when you cannot, there are people who are revolted. Why is God like that? Why are men built like that? Why are women built like that? Can you ever solve something by behaving like this? No, because you cannot renegotiate the creation of the planet Earth. You don't have the power to adjust anything there. And therefore, your bickering and constant complaining doesn't solve anything. Things are the way they are. Therefore, remember that this deal is the way it is. You give something and you don't ask, why does Indra need that? What, are you provoked that Indra gets something? It's your problem that Indra gets something? Oh, we should give less to Indra. Maybe he gets too much from too many people. That's none of your problem and you can't do anything about it. So it's useless to to spend a minute of energy in this direction. So the gods nourished by the sacrifice will give you the desired objects so he who enjoys the objects given by the gods without offering in return to them is verily a thief there are lots of thieves nowadays and that is why the kali yuga is going deep the imbalance of cosmic forces is going deep and a lot of things are happening because we do not give back for example to give you an example gurdjieff stated george ivanovich gurdjieff who is not a vedic he was a modern mystic but who indeed had a advanced spirituality and gurdjieff claimed that even the automobiles the cars he was a driver himself he was driving a car so he knew what he was talking in the 1930s like at an early time when cars were relatively rare and few and gurdjieff said that cars are actually representing a form of demonic entities the name demonic does not mean diabolic or dark demonic is a midterm rajasic entities and that humanity by using cars made a deal with those demons that every car has a soul to it attached although materialistic people will never be able to see that ...or understand it, because we don't know what the soul is, first of all. And therefore, you use an automobile, you, co- you cooperate with them, but there is a price. Like, we ask those spirits, please accept to be physically present. We are going to build metallic bodies for you. You will embody yourself into these metallic bodies, and you will exist for 10, 20, 30 years serving us because of course the automobiles under all the forms they serve us but what do they get in exchange they should get something in exchange shouldn't they because it's always a give and receive especially when you deal with lower spirits the higher spirits might afford to be generous and just give even if you don't give them because they are divine but especially the lower ones they want something And Gurdjieff said, that's where all the people who die in car accidents go. The car accident people are like a blood sacrifice, like a holocaust, which the humanity does, feeding the automobile demons. And people don't even realize that every one thousandth person who drives a car has to bleed or die as a sacrifice to those demons because they ask a price and that price is implicit nobody negotiated this deal it simply settled by itself exactly as settles as dust settles you stir the dust up and then it settles why did it settle like this that's the way it settled exactly in the same way we settled things with airplanes with cars with space shuttles and space travel ...and everything, every industrial revolution, factories, machineries... ...I don't say that we shouldn't go there... ...but we should go there consciously and deliberately... ...like if we go there, let's at least do it knowingly... ...and then you don't need to have people die... ...you can give something, you can have some special brahmins or priests... ...who do yagya to those spirits and then they get their butter and people don't need to die but if you don't give the butter then the deal becomes a sort of primitive give and receive it's a simply a exchange of things it's just a free bartering of things you use us and we take every one thousands of you it's as simple as that therefore remember that we are living in a world where these laws are ignored completely and that's why the revelation of krishna is very profound and it touches many 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 levels the shamans the medicine men the clairvoyants the some sorts of mystics who are endowed with clairvoyance some of the great yogis and saints they knew these things they saw them they saw them with their third eye they understood the laws of the universe and that's why sometimes they seem to have acted very weirdly there is always a price when i was in india i suddenly met with a guy who was the manager of a trust and he was coming from south india and in south india they are very devoted to shiva it is the tamil nadu part of india where they have those beautiful shiva temples and the shaiva siddhanta is strong still there and this guy told me the following story because i noticed at some point that he had a horrible wound in his palm one of his hands was not wounded horribly wounded like he had a a ditch in his palm that you could see the tendons or the bones i didn't look carefully but you could see either the tendons or the bones in the palm. So deep it was. It was like somebody had simply excavated a big lump of flesh, deep, a couple of centimeters deep, in his palm. And it had healed, but it still was looking horribly. And I asked him, what happened? And he hesitated to tell, and then he told me. He said, one of my good friends who was a neighbor, His daughter got a fever, and it is one of those strange tropical fevers in which people often die, at least in India where medical system is quite primitive. They have a lot of infant mortality, a lot of child mortality, in which the children get malaria or dengue fever or chicken cunia or God knows what, and sometimes they die. So this girl was lying on a cot in her father's house, dying. She had already crossed a certain limit. The fever had gone on for three days, four days, and they started losing hope. And then this guy simply went to the Shiva temple, and he took in his hand camphor. They burn camphor. They have some of these lamps with which they make oblations, and they give fire to Shiva. And they usually burn camphor. In India, they sell some tablets, some pill-like things, which are made of camphor, and you set them on fire, and they burn quite intensely. So this madman took a pill of camphor or two or three right in his palm like Shiva, exactly like the dancing Shiva. So he took the burning camphor in his bare palm and he kind of stretched it to Shiva and he said, heal the daughter of my friend, heal. And he stayed like this and he burned himself to the bone. He simply endured a tearing pain. And he simply was like crazy, like stubborn, like enraged. He simply said, I burned my hand, you heal that girl. Guess what? She was healed instantaneously. He gave something. Of course, he could have given something a bit more friendly. But he was desperate and he felt that for a life, he had to give something really valuable, something really painful, something really big. And he just mutilated his own hand, but the daughter of his neighbor was healed in the same minute, in the same time, at the same moment. Thus, again I'm saying, these laws function and some people understand them, while some people have lost their flair, their intuition about what's happening with the laws of the universe. And Krishna then continues... It says, the righteous who eat the remains of the Yagya are freed from all sins, but the unrighteous who prepare food for themselves alone, truly, they eat sin. Or in the Shivananda translation, the righteous who eat of the remnants of the sacrifice are freed from all sins, but those sinful ones who cook food only for their own sake verily eat sin now we come to the food that's also an overlooked one and usually nobody pays attention to this except spiritual people or some people who blindly follow some old traditions without knowing why the rule was that you have to eat the remnants of the sacrifice you can see that in the Hare Krishna temples they still do it of course it's a sectarian way but still the principle is correct i cannot say that that principle is wrong they prepare food like 20 kilos of food and when the food is done and pristine untouched the first one who tastes of the food is krishna is god when you prepare food you have to give a part of it so they take A bowl of rice, they take a bowl of sabji and they put it on the altar and they offer it to Shiva, uh, to Krishna in their case. And the rest of the food, which here in Bhagavad Gita they are called like the leftovers, the remains, the remnants. But it's actually the remnants suggest that 90% has gone and there is a little bit on the bottom of the dish. And that's what you should get. It's the other way around. God gets 10% and you get the rest. That rest is called prasad. It's blessed food. It has been offered to God. You gave to God his share and then that food, when you eat it, it's like a balm. It's health. It's holy. It's blessed. It's it's legitimate. You have paid for you devouring the nature. By giving thanks and offering something to God. Does God need the, does Krishna need the sabji and the rice of the Hare Krishnas? No. Of only the egoistic, arrogant people feel provoked by that. And they say, but still I don't understand why do I have. That's just the irritation of a selfish person with a slightly demonic temperament. Who feels provoked because it's like you have a debt. You do. When you are alive, you have a debt, because somebody made you alive and you didn't make yourself alive. There is a debt. You live in this universe, you come in this universe with a debt. And if you don't like the idea, I'm sorry, but that's the way it goes. And therefore, people have to be humble. This is the famous principle, which we teach to our yoga teachers and we advise them, of tithing which in Europe and in the Western world, everybody was practicing it. When people made crops, let's say you are a corn farmer and you had fields full of corn and in September you went and cropped the corn. What did you do first? The first thing that's brutal, not netto. It's the first thing when you gathered the crop. 10% goes to God, which for them in that time, was the church but they believed that the church represented god because otherwise they wouldn't it doesn't work if you do it absurdly that's called tithing one tenth of everything you make should go to god that's the sacrifice and then the rest are the remnants you can eat the remnants this means when you prepare food prepare 10 percent more than you need and the first 10% offer them. Many people are confused because there are ways of offering it directly, like we teach in The Art of Dying and other, some ways in which you swing and you do some special mudras, but you can offer it indirectly, like in Karma Yoga. In Karma Yoga, you offer some things and you do the consecration. I met a yoga teacher in Vancouver she wanted to respect this she was coming from the Jewish tradition and she wanted to respect this principle and she was doing pretty good financially she was driving a Jaguar and stuff like that and every three days or at least once a week she was getting a sack of cheese sandwiches and she was walking on the streets of Vancouver and feeding all the homeless And she was offering it to God. And then she was going, she wouldn't give them money because she knew that some of them will buy alcohol or drugs. So she gave them directly food. She simply took a sandwich, some baguettes, made nice sandwiches, and she was giving them personally to the homeless people on the street. And this was a yoga teacher who in her daily life was doing yoga courses. And still she found the time, I have seen her, she didn't do it for me she was doing it anyway she was going on the street and giving sandwiches to the hungry people 10% should be given the tithing was a very very healthy principle and I am recommending it to you I remember I read a book I forgot it was I think it was called it was something about succeeding, winning. It was some American author in the 70s. It was a pocket book. And the guy was pretty manipuristic. Author, pretty like this. And I was shocked. Because that guy started a book. And it was like one of these books. How to win using your mind. How to... It was a book about success. And this manipuristic guy had discovered the principle. He said, in the beginning, from the beginning, he said, always from whatever you do, give 10% for something which for you can mean that it goes to God. This means you can give it to the children of the street in Calcutta, to Mother Teresa. You can give it to some hungry children in Africa. You can give it to the homeless people from the street. You can give it to your church. You can give it to your yoga school. It depends what you believe that would be properly used money and therefore <coughs> that is a consecration that is why again Krishna says the righteous the righteous ones who eat the remains of the Yagya like the food has to be you have to do a consecration of the act of eating a thanking, and even in those days they did an offering like the Hare Krishnas do Again, you don't need to do that, you can just tithe, you can give to a hungry child, you can give to the Buddhist monks. That's why they give food to the Buddhist monks every morning. That's tithing for the Thai citizens around here. They are very proud to give food to the monks because that's their way of gaining merit. Like a bit of my income goes to the monks who have no food and they are beggars and they donate money to the temple. There was the festival of the temple two weeks ago. The local community of Thais, they were very happy and they told us normally it takes ten years to build such a building like this in most of the villages in Thailand. We did it in almost three. In one more year and it's going to be done. Like they were proud. We put more money. We donated more money than other villages And look what a beautiful temple we build. Like, it it shows that we have faith. It's tithing. How many of you have been in London and have seen that huge Hindu temple made of white marble somewhere near Wimbledon or something? It's a multi, multi, multi-million pound temple. You go there, it's like a fairy tale. And that was done by the people from Rajasthan. And the Hindu diaspora from Gujarat, they also decided to make a red marble, one even bigger, as a response to that. That's tithing. You give something. Many Indian people living in the West, they become doctors, lawyers, and they make tons of money and they give. When I crossed the ocean last autumn, I read a Hinduism today or something, I think from Ontario. And there it was, rich Indian woman, doctor or lawyer from Glasgow, she donated an island to some guru from India. An island, a whole island in Scotland is donated for an ashram that's tithing, that's giving something to the guru, to the church, to the hungry children, to something which for you means something divine. It's done all the time. Therefore, Remember that here there are some very important principles and those who have ears to hear should hear because Krishna corresponds with the immemorial tradition and what Krishna says, the Christians were doing in the West as well, although they don't believe in Krishna. It's a universal thing. The great clairvoyants know this and they have spoken about this in every tradition. So he says, the righteous who eat the remains of the Yagya, like first God and then you, are freed from all sins. What sins? Well, you know, you destroy the nature to eat. Look at the intensive agriculture that we practice today to feed all this amount of humanity. It's not always very harmonious and very friendly and very ecological. So there are some sins. We disturb the nature. We constantly pollute the nature. And If you do it right, there is no sin. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa even said there are spiritual people who consecrate everything and even if they eat meat, that's ultra-orthodox Ramakrishna in India, in Hindu India, where meat eating was inconceivable. Of course, the Muslims were doing it in the nearby community, but for Hindus, it was like unacceptable. And he said there are spiritual people who consecrate and even if they eat meat, it's pure for them and there are people who don't consecrate and don't do anything spiritual and even the more whole even the most wholesome food becomes poison in their bodies because it's not only about nutrition it's about how we relate to the divine and but the unrighteous who prepare food for themselves alone that's selfishness that's ignorance me for myself and my family that's a sort of clan type of egoism then then truly they eat sin says Krishna meditate deeply on this statement because it says a lot it's again the lack of sacrificing here referring especially to the act of eating and thus bringing us to the tithing that there was this habit of consecrating and then You, like, eat the leftovers. First, God eats, and then you humbly eat the leftovers. Of course, the leftovers are the bulk of the food. But still, the intention is pure. And then, he describes, because he mentioned food, and food is definitely important, because it sustains life, then he gives the chain, in case arjuna didn't get the message he again gives a chain of causality and he says from food creatures come into being like life comes from food without food creatures would not exist from rain is food produced to have food you need to have rain from yagya comes forth rain that's the occult one right people think that it rains because it rains but Krishna says it rains because you sacrifice to the gods. Any materialistic scientist would abhor this statement and say, oh, come on, it rains anyway. Maybe it does, but then we don't support an invisible energy mechanism which doubles this physical circuit and we still break some harmonies of nature. From sacrifice arises rain and sacrifice or and the ayagya is born of action. Like you cannot do a sacrifice not doing anything. To do a sacrifice, you'd have to do something such as light a fire according to some rules, start saying some mantras, through. there is an action. You have to consecrate, you have to give money to or to food to a hungry child. There is a, whatever that sacrifice is, it's an action it involves an action there is no sacrifice where you don't do any action except perhaps some meditation yogic things but he doesn't refer to this now he refers to action so the whole point was that he wanted to say that action is necessary because action gives when done right is sacrifice sacrifice produces rain which can be extrapolated it's not only about rain it's about sunshine it's about the proper temperature it's simply the right conditions it's like the nature is your friend and there are no floods and nuclear catastrophes and stuff like this action transforms into sacrifice sacrifice yields rain rain produces food and food allows to the creatures to exist Therefore, without action, existence would be impossible. A spiritual existence, an ecological existence, a harmonious existence is becoming impossible. This is a very important chain of causality in which he is demonstrating the importance of sacrifice and action. And he then continues. No action to be born of Brahma. Brahma, the creator of the universe in Vedic tradition. Brahma springs from the imperishable. The imperishable is like God the supreme. Because Brahma in Hinduism is just an aspect of the divinity. is the creative facet of God. So he says, no action to be born of Brahma. Because the creator creates. And that's an action. But Brahma springs from the imperishable, therefore the all-pervading Brahma is ever established in Yagya. Like he says, even the gods do sacrifice. Even the universe is considered in some forms of religion, like even in Christianity and others, as a sort of sacrifice of God. God cut a part of himself, and turned it into the universe. There is a portion of the universe which became from non-manifested, manifested. From void, it became Prakriti. From Purusha, it turned into Prakriti. And that's considered to be a sacrifice. In many spiritual texts, you find this concept that God had to sacrifice himself to make the universe appear and existence as such Appear. And therefore, here the idea is that everything in this universe is based on sacrifice. It's not only the human beings which are asked this toll. Even Brahma sacrifices, because Brahma, one of the major facets of God, basically it says the, imp- the all pervading Brahma. All pervading means omnipresent. When a deity, when a spirit is declared to be omnipresent, that's something gigantic. It's way beyond Jupiter, Indra, Varuna, or those. Those are not omnipresent. But Brahma is declared omnipresent. It's therefore a divine level already. And it says... Know that action comes from Brahma, and Brahma himself proceeds from the imperishable. He is not the end of the chain. And therefore, even the all-pervading Brahma ever rests in sacrifice. It's a chain of command. You can sacrifice to Indra, but Indra also sacrifices to somebody above him. Of course, you can sacrifice directly to the Supreme. And then you cut all the chain of command, and you go directly to the point. That's what Karma Yoga advises, and that's what Krishna wants to advise. But there are people who belong to other religions, other beliefs, other traditions, other cultures. Even for them, there is a chain of command. When you sacrifice, the sacrifice doesn't end. It just goes on and on. You sacrifice to Indra, and Indra sacrifice to Brahma, and Brahma sacrifice to the imperishable. Of course, they don't light fires. Because sacrifice, at that level, Indra is a causal god, is a god existing in the causal world. In the causal world, there don't exist objects as we know them. In the causal world, the whole universe is a world of ideas and archetypes. And therefore, what, what Indra does in his own turn is incomprehensible to the human mind. It is a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice of butter, or of prana, or because Indra is at a level which is much beyond those. But still, there is there a sacrifice. Therefore, Krishna very clearly says, know that action comes in Brahma, and Brahma in his turn proceeds from the imperishable, from the supreme. Therefore, the all-pervading Brahma ever rests in sacrifice. Like if Indra sacrifices and Brahma sacrifices, why wouldn't you? It's just ignorance. And it is therefore a blindness in which we have reached. The great mystics told us about this, but we choose to ignore it and to become indifferent and lay on the job, become spiritually indifferent. Let us stop for a few minutes for a well-deserved break and a technical break. And then I will continue for another half an hour, hoping to conclude today all the subject of what Krishna had to say about these important elements on sacrifice so krishna has beautifully described the principle of sacrifice which now you understand it's a much much bigger subject and it's omnipresent everything in this universe can be seen from the standpoint of this sacrificing and krishna continues in the strophe number 16 saying he who in this life Does not follow the wheel thus set revolving, whose life is sinful, whose contentment lies in the senses, which is the vast majority of people nowadays, their contentment lies in the senses, like I eat something good, I sleep on something comfortable, it's all about the senses. People want to have pleasure of their five senses. So, he who does not follow this will, who doesn't understand this principle, whose life is sinful, whose contentment lies in the senses, he lives in vain, O Partha, O Arjuna. That's a very tough statement, and it was echoed by some of the great mystics like Ramakrishna and others. Krishna says he lives in vain, like you are not getting nothing. It's a life wasted. So he who does not follow the wheel thus set revolving, who is of sinful life rejoicing in the senses, he lives in vain, O Arjuna. That's a pretty tough statement. If you take it into account that in India they consider that Krishna is an avatar and therefore God or of divine origin, then a spirit of divine origin, Krishna, simply says, if you do not understand the will of life, if you do not offer, and thus your life is sinful, because that's what he said, that that is a sin, not sinful in general, but sinful to the fact that you do not offer, then, he says, rejoicing in the senses, that's all the object of the life for those people, then such one lives in vain. That's a very, very hard statement. Try to think if you are living in vain or not by the definition of Krishna. It's a powerful statement and Krishna is not a soothsayer or a politically correct person. He hits hard even if it's uncomfortable to hear such things. And he says, now he comes back He's moving now back towards karma yoga. His parenthesis is almost done because he spoke about this and now he wants to show that action is therefore an offering. You have to offer your action just like everything else because it's a sacrifice. You don't do a fire sacrifice, you do a karma yoga. And he says, but the man whose delight is in the self alone who is content in the self, who rejoices only in the self, for him there is no action that he need to do. That's powerful because, he says, there is a third situation and that is the spirituality. He says, but the man whose delight is in the self, you remember he mentioned that before in the chapter number two when he described the true sage, When he was commenting it in the Raja Yoga style. And he said the true sage is the one who is content in the self by the self. Like I'm not happy because I did something. Remember I explained this a few weeks ago. That many people define themselves through their actions. I took a license in medical science. Therefore I am good. Krishna says it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what you are, and therefore, there are people who don't do anything, and they are happy. For example, there are people who live in a cave. There are people who are hermits. They don't do anything. They don't engage in charitable work. They don't do anything. And yet, they don't sit there and they think, oh, how useless I am. What a parasite I am. I'm sitting here and breathing the oxygen of this planet, I'm eating food, and I'm actually not doing anything for anybody, but I am a child of God, I am wonderful, I am divine, there is no need to do anything, and that is another case, because for such a one, there is no action, such a one. The action is the spirituality. The action has become the meditation, the awareness. That's their action. And that is why he comes back to the sage, to the ideal of the sage, which he would like Arjuna to become one of those. But he says, but the man whose delight is in the self alone, who is content in the self, who rejoices only in the self, for him there is no action that he need do. Like, there is no need for sacrifice even for that person, because that person's life is a sacrifice from one end to the other. But for the man who rejoices only in the self, who is satisfied in the self, who is content in the self alone, verily, there is nothing to do. Therefore, of here, of course, he mentions that there are some people who are above even the sacrifices. Even this law of sacrifices will not work for somebody at that level because for them the sacrifice is already a subtle existential spiritual thing and it is a combustion of the spirit it's exactly like my soul is merging with a universal soul and that in itself is an offering that's the supreme offering i give i don't give to god lambs or fire or prayer i give to god myself that's the most precious offer i don't have anything bigger than that to offer offering my life offering my awareness and thus offering myself that's when the drop of water turns back to the ocean the one of the psalms of david of king david in the bible says the gift that god wants is a contrite heart, a humble heart. David says clearly, God does not want lambs. God wants your heart. That's the supreme gift. All the rest are palliatives, they are surrogates, they are replacements until you get to the point of Ramakrishna and then you give yourself. You throw yourself into the fire. That's a self-immolation and sometimes understood in very incorrect and skewed way, because there are people who literally threw themselves into the fire to reach to the gods. It was even imposed on widows in India as a sign of devotion, that they will jump in the funeral pyre of their husband. And, of course, it was a monstrosity. It was because it was not a freely consented thing, which came from devotion, like Jesus giving himself like a sacrificial lamb. The next lamb is not a lamb, it's Jesus himself. Jesus becomes the new lamb. Then there is no more need for lambs, because you've got Jesus as the lamb. And thus, this is of course, even at the level of Jesus, there is a sacrifice. This is how he became the Christ. He gave himself For the benefit of the whole planet, for the benefit of the whole humanity. So even Jesus sacrifices, but not in ways which are visible. Okay, in the case of Jesus, there is a visible part to that, which is his crucifixion. But actually, it can be purely internal. It's a meditation, it's a consecration. And he continues defining the image of the great sage. He says, the one who is happy in the self, by the self, for that one no action is necessary. And he says, neither has he any profit to gain in this life from the actions he has done or from the actions he has not done, nor is there any living creature on whom he need rely for any purpose. That's a strong statement again, because he says, such person has nothing to gain and nothing to lose, therefore has reached a total detachment, and for them, either they do actions or they don't do actions, it's superfluous. That's the condition of Krishna himself. He's actually going to say a bit further, look at me, I'm exactly that way which can seem conceited, but actually he has to exemplify to Arjuna, because Arjuna is completely flabbergasted by all this whole thing happening. So he says, for him there is no interest whatsoever in what is done or not done, nor does he depend on any being for any object, for any purpose, which is the condition of freedom. Remember in the very first lecture of yoga, I tell to you all, who is free? People say that they want freedom, but actually, according to the definition of Buddha and whoever else was a discriminate person in spirituality, we are not free. This is a prison planet. There is no freedom socially or interhumanly, and there is no freedom metaphysically or in an occult way, in a spiritual or existential way. And here, Krishna discreetly tells us the person who reaches this is doesn't matter if they do or they don't do they can do or not do and there will be no karma there will be no gain or loss and such a person there is no living creature on whom he need to rely for any purpose which of course can sound very cold and isolated like i don't need anybody i don't need anybody I can very well live without anything or anybody. That's a big statement, right? Because on this planet, we all are in a chain. For example, when you eat potatoes, you don't produce those potatoes. So you buy them from the market. And you need somebody who does the potatoes. You actually rely on a chain of production, on a chain of merchant, of, of trade, on a chain of transportation of the produce. Even if you are just to eat uh, food, just to take the food issue and you rely and you depend on a lot of things. And then electricity stops or the boats are not coming to the island anymore and suddenly the whole, then you see that you are dependent on a lot of things. But Krishna says, he who reaches this state has reached freedom. That person is not dependent. They can seem like Because nobody says that Swami Shivananda cannot choose to live in the world. And then if he lives in the world, he buys rice from a shop and he boils it and he makes his food. But that's just because he wants to look like you and me. And it's just because he has chosen to be there because it serves a deeper purpose. But he could be, he could arrange his life in such a way that he doesn't depend on anything or anybody if you want the ultimate exemplification of that were with the jews when they wandered for 40 years in the desert in sinai under the guidance of moses and there was no food and the jews were fed says the bible and you can choose to believe it or not but there were christian saints who 1500 years they did it again and it worked for them as well So they believed in it and they tried it. And the Jews were 40 years in the desert and according to the biblical texts, they were eating manna from heaven. This manna, in case you are curious, make some research. It's a whitish dust. It's like a sort of condensation on the rocks, like a sort of a sticky dew. In the morning, when they would wake up, On the rocks there would be a layer like it would be, I don't know, comparing it with guano, you know, some excrements from birds or something. There would be a layer of a whitish thing and they would take this layer with a knife and scrape it and that powder, they would eat it. And mysteriously, they lived on that, not for three days, for 40 years, says the Bible. Even if it was just four years and not 40, and still it's remarkable. So it's like, on what agricultural producers did they depend on in those days? On nobody. They were free. They were living with God. There have been Christian saints who went in Palestine, Sinai, Egypt, and they didn't even have the guarantee that they will find drinking water where they went. I have been in Kelt, east of Jerusalem, there were some monks who are living like 50 meters high on a vertical wall. And there is a hole in the wall, and they have put bricks at the entrance, they walled the entrance. And the water is on the other side of that vadi, of that canyon, and the canyon is like 150-200 meters deep and vertical. And there is a water running on the opposite wall of the canyon. So if you were to go to the water, you would have to get out from your cave, do some mountaineering feats with no equipment of any kind, descend, get a couple of liters of water, because how much can you carry? Five, that's the desert heat, and then get back. It would take you the whole day to do this, and you'd sweat so much that you'd spend all the water. And those people were walling the entrance and they were not getting. How did they get water? Some people say they were doing urine therapy and drinking most of their urine. And thus they needed very little water. But the point is, there were people, you can see traces of people who went like head forward into self-annihilation. They went into a place where they couldn't have food, they couldn't have water. And still they lived they dedicated themselves to god completely and like maybe when i'm telling it to you you don't really get it but when you will go there now Vadikelt kelt is very difficult these days because it's in the this story with the palestinian territory so it's very very out there it's very risky now to go there i did this many many years ago but the point is if you will ever go to such a place You'll get a shock, like I remember when I was there, I thought I knew a lot of things. And when I sat there in the middle of that canyon and start feeling, I got goosebumps. It was frightening because suddenly I understood the dimension of what those people did. It sounds very easy when you talk about it. Some crazy person goes into a cave in the desert, and... but there were hundreds of them in that place. And it was not possible for anybody to come with a cart of water and pass from cave to cave and say, water, daily water, and nothing like this happened. And therefore, those people were like suicidal. They were like going kamikaze, totally. If God keeps me, I live. If God doesn't keep me, I die, period. And they lived. So that's why, remember that such their desire was not to depend on anyone to depend only on god not to depend on any living being that was the meaning of their freedom that's freedom i don't have to say thank you to anybody but god nothing gives me anything that's of course the mystical the 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 supreme activity there and then he continues and now krishna starts returning he finished the parentheses. he still has some echoes of the things about sacrifice but he basically starts returning to the main theme of chapter three which was action is superior to inaction. He did all this to tell him, okay, there is the sacrifice, and the sacrifice has special rules, and he kind of lost himself into that subject. But now he comes back, and he still wants to point to the thing that there is action, and action can be done in a spiritual way like karma yoga, and then it is dharma, then it is sacrifice, and that's the right thing, and that's the way to live your life. Then you are not a thief. Because, he said, if you don't do the sacrifice, you live on the back of the others, virtually speaking. And he says, therefore, O Arjuna, remain unattached. Always do the action worthy of performance. Like, be detached and do what has to be done. It's not because you like it or dislike it. It's do the action. The uh, the action worthy of performance is the sacrifice. The action worthy of performance is the dharma. It's what has to be done. Engaging in action, then he says, truly unattached, man attains to the supreme. That's the very definition of karma yoga. Engaging into action unattached, man attains to the supreme what do you want more than that that's do action without attachment don't be attached and do the right thing do the dharma so he says that's what he always wants he wants to get Arjuna to get to work but it will take another 15 chapters before he will convince Arjuna because he is a bit slow and Krishna with all the great arguments which he has He still has to insist in many ways. He says, therefore without attachment do thou always perform the action which should be done. For by performing action without attachment man reaches the supreme. Krishna says it. It's God that speaks. By action without attachment man reaches the supreme. That's why karma yoga is a path enlightenment it is defined like this all it takes is to find the resourcefulness to act with detachment and to do the dharmic things and he gives examples to inspire him it's one of the last ones for today he says by action alone indeed janaka and others attain perfection moreover even looking to the welfare of the world the masses the people you should perform action this second part addresses especially to arjuna because arjuna is from a royal family and in the old days the royalty and the aristocracy were not arrogant kids, and they thought that they had duties it's a huge duty to be a king or a duke or a count or something because people depend on you because you have the right of life and death over them and therefore if you do something wrong you are damaging lots of people and your karma is going to be very serious and that is why he says you even have to think about the welfare of the world like if you are a kshatriya which he is a warrior class an aristocracy class there are people who are hanging on you there are people who depend on your actions So act for God's sake, do the right thing, because you have to think, if not of yourself, you have to think of your subjects. You have to think of the welfare of the world. And he says, by action alone, indeed, Janaka and others gain perfection. Janaka, like Arjuna, is one of the very beloved names of many yogis. Paramahamsa Yogananda called his millionaire california disciple who sponsored his ashrams and land and endeavors in california one of the main financial benefactors of yogananda and of his self-realization fellowship he called him shri or swami janakananda he was a businessman from america but he got the name janakananda in the same way one of the main teachers who grew up under Swami Satyananda Sarasvati of Bihar, was a Scandinavian man who became the teacher of Scandinavisk yoga. He took the Bihar system of yoga and created his one of the first disciples of Satyananda who moved in the West and did that. And therefore, Swami Satyananda immediately called him Swami the same, Janakananda. The idea being why Janaka in the old spiritual tradition of India is an old king of India who learned about yoga. And he had a great soul and he was very evolved spiritually and he immediately got freaked out that he wanted to do yoga and meditation and reach enlightenment. And he was about to drop the kingdom, like to abdicate, and go in the forest and do yoga. So great his aspiration was that he was ready to give up being a king just to do his spiritual practice. And then one of the rishis advised him, taught him a little bit of the tantric path. And they told him, you don't need to go in the jungle. It's not the right action. Because if you go in the jungle, it would be good for you. But what about all your subjects? Who will come as a king in your place? There is nobody prepared around here to be a good, righteous king because you have not educated anybody. You don't have a son or somebody who can take over and do the duties with responsibility. So if you go, this kingdom will fall apart because a bad king, an an inexperienced king will come and be a king and he will drive things in the wrong direction. So this rishi told him it's necessary for you to still do your duties as a king because the kings have duties in a proper society they don't just enjoy benefits it's true they enjoy respect they are given total obedience but they have great obligations and those obligations are hanging above their heads like the sword of Damocles so this king Janakananda is the one who did yoga in his palace He stayed with his wife, he fulfilled his royal duties, and yet he reached Samadhi. And because of this, very often Indian gurus, when they have a pupil in the West who is involved in business, money, who is financially abundant, they call them Janakananda or Janaka because it suggests this. It's a favorite theme from the Indian tradition and spirituality. And even in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna brings him as example. He says, by action alone, indeed, Janaka and others, Janaka is not the only one, there are a few other examples, gained perfection. So, he says, be like Janaka, be an enlightened king. Arjuna is exactly in the same position. He is royalty and he wants to shirk his duty. And Krishna is encouraging him in all the possible ways. So he says, Janaka and others attain perfection verily by action only. Even with a view to the protection of the masses, thou should perform action. Like it's not only when you are what you are, there is a bigger responsibility. And thus Krishna has got to the point where he constantly preaches action spiritual action he shows that there is the action of the enlightened being who doesn't need any action he shows that there is sacrifice which is a sort of ritual action and then he shows that there is action done with detachment which is also a form of sacrifice and which is karma yoga and which is finally the one which he asks of arjuna he knows that arjuna is not happy in the self by the self Because he is not yet an enlightened being. He knows that Arjuna is not a Brahmin and therefore he is not performing Yagya. So those two are for other people. And then there is the third one which is for Arjuna. And that is perform the action. Perform the action with detachment and perform the action which has to be performed. What is according to your Dharma. This is how Krishna has now returned from yagya, sacrifice, and mentioned the enlightened beings who don't have to rely on anything, or who have reached total freedom, but there is a third alternative, and that's where he wanted to get to start with. He wanted to show to Arjuna the value of action done as a sacrifice, of action done with non-attachment. This is where we stop tonight. He will continue. He will continue with an unbelievable statement about himself, which you will get on our next meeting with continuation from this. Let us now remain in silence for a couple of minutes, trying to absorb the invaluable teachings which Krishna gives, as well as the yogic and tantric interpretation which I tried to convey to you. And in this way, You can, so that you can use these things in your daily spiritual life. And that will do. Namaste to all of you. With this we have concluded for tonight.